Well, one of the big things prior to that is I actually changed how I did my grocery shopping. About a year before getting rid of the car, I got tired of my neighborhood grocery store because they were really bad at keeping their shelves stocked. So I decided to switch from shopping there where I would basically drive once a week and and get groceries for a week to shopping at a grocery store downtown because I was already passing through downtown, you know, at least once a day. I would basically just pretty much every day stop at the downtown grocery store, fill up my backpack and hop on the light rail and go home. Hi, everyone. You've tuned in to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity in our communities. I'm John Simmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your honored host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Wednesday, July 29th, 2020. In this, our 35th episode, I'm delighted to introduce you to Mike Christensen, founder of the Utah Rail Passengers Association and a longtime supporter of the Active Towns Initiative. But before we get started, I can't forget to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous tax-deductible contributions of our donors, as well as the patrons through our Patreon site. Thank you all so very much. Later during a brief intermission, I'll share how you too can help support our efforts to create safer, more inviting all ages and abilities environments that promote a culture of activity. Okay, all aboard now. Let's get this conversation with Mike Christensen rolling. I am delighted to have a good friend from Salt Lake City on the line, Mike Christensen. How are you, Mike? I am good. Fantastic. Well, what's the weather like uh, these days there in Salt Lake City? It is typical summer weather where, let's see, we're looking at a high uh, a little bit over 90 today, although it might cool down a little bit because we might have a little bit of thunderstorms this afternoon. But yeah. Uh, Otherwise, is pretty typical. One of the things that I'd like to do is paint a picture for the listeners who may have never been to the Salt Lake City area before. Describe it. What's what's the elevation and the topography, and you know what, what's Salt Lake City all about? It's it's really interesting because we are in a big mountain valley. The, the elevation of the Great Salt Lake uh, is just under 4,200 feet, and so Salt Lake City is just above that. And so it's it's fairly high elevation relative to the rest of the country, you know, with the exception of places like Denver that's, that's higher. But it, it's unique because we're basically surrounded by mountains on, on our east and west side especially on the east side. And because of that, we have ski resorts that are extremely close by that you can basically fly in. And if there's no traffic, you can be at the ski resort on a lift, 
within an hour. Yeah, that makes us very unique, but it, it also presents some challenges because of, of the geography, because of us being in this valley. It's kind of like a bowl, and whatever uh, pollution gets produced inside of that bowl, if there's not enough airflow blowing through the valley, it quickly builds up and causes problems, especially in the winter. We get uh, a lot of particulate matter build up in the winter. A lot of times we'll have storms, I don't know, every couple weeks or so. But in between storms is when we get the big pollution build up because there's not the airflow to, to disperse it. The, the interesting thing is that this March with the pandemic hitting and everything slowing down, we've had some of the cleanest air that we've had in a long time. And so that kind of has, if, if there is, I, I see a lot of different silver linings in the pandemic. And part of it is actually a lot of people have realized that, oh, well, if we reorient our priorities, we could have much cleaner air. Hopefully people will, will remember that after the, the pandemic has passed. It's a very unique geography because we're kind of like on the edge of a desert. So we are very much a semi-arid re region where water is very precious, but yet the people that have come to Utah have very much brought the expectation that everybody's supposed to have a green lawn. And so we are always concerned about having enough water, but at the same time, we realize that two-thirds of our water use goes to our lawns. Mike, is that also sort of an indication that there's that expectation that everybody is in a single-family home? Yeah, that, that is also a, a big problem because, well, I live in Salt Lake City near downtown where we've got a great system of gridded streets there's still a lot that has been developed recently that has been the traditional suburban sprawl of single-family homes on large lots with a street network that's fairly disconnected and not conducive to walking, biking, and transit. And so while here in Salt Lake City, we've made some great strides forward as far as having a really great commuter rail and light rail system. We still have a lot of, of our uh, urban area that has, that, that's in the traditional suburban development pattern that's just not conducive to good urbanism. Yeah, so it's definitely challenged from a land use expectation perspective, as well as the expectations of how that lot is then treated, as you said, you know, growing those those fanciful lawns and, and having that sort of manicured sort of look to it. Yes, the geography and the special nature of what that valley is like nestled right up against the the front range of the, the Wasatch Mountains there 
does create that stagnation of air. But guess what happens when you turn the valve off of putting the pollutants in? You can't just blame it on, you know, sort of that greenhouse effect of being in that bowl. You know, guess what happens if we sort of change our behaviors and change our polluting ways? You can get to a situation that's quite livable because Salt Lake City had been making front page news, you know, maybe not this year, but previous years where the air has been so bad that it was it was identified as the worst in the nation. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I don't really have any any uh, health breathing concerns, but when it gets really bad, I even start to notice my throat feeling scratchy. And yeah, and it's it's psychologically it's also very depressing in a way because you when you can literally see how dirty the air is that that is a big problem and to paraphrase mayor hidalgo's quote in paris where she says hey if we can't even see our monuments and can't see the eiffel tower we've got a problem and we need to do something about this and so she famously said and this is dating back to the very first car-free streets event that she did back in 2015. It's like, we need to change. We need to do something. And it's interesting to see that all these many years later, five years later, she's still beating that drum and saying, hey, we need to change. Paris needs to change. We need to make our city more people-oriented and less and less orientation towards the motor vehicles. And Paris is an interesting example to compare to Salt Lake City. There's many parts of of Paris and Salt Lake City that are very, very different. Certainly the architecture and the density is very, very different. But one of the things that I noticed about Paris is that many of their main boulevards were just as wide as the street grid in Salt Lake City. So talk a little bit about that street grid in Salt Lake City, because it is a very, very interesting, and I don't want to say unique, but it's a very interesting dynamic of the the, the platting and of that original street grid. But it also has a whole bunch of really interesting opportunities for the future. Yeah, we have very wide streets just about everywhere in Salt Lake City. That was done because of the way that that's the street blocks were laid out and uh, how things were surveyed. It's, it's not just that the streets are wide, but the blocks are big. They are 660-foot block faces, which is three times the size of the block faces in downtown Portland. It is very strange for me going from walking around Salt Lake City to walking around downtown Portland because it psychologically feels like I am getting everywhere in Portland really fast because I'm basically ticking off the, the intersections that I go through. And so like, I go to downtown Portland and everything seems so close and intimate because of the small blocks. And it's a problem in Salt Lake City. I, I don't think it's a fatal flaw we are working on ways to you know work around this other places in the world melbourne comes to mind that also has very uh, large blocks 
Melbourne has done lots of work on uh, establishing alleyways and midway through the blocks so that it breaks it up uh, and gives you a much better pedestrian experience. And uh, we've been doing the same thing in Salt Lake City. We have it in our city code that when when development occurs, that we encourage developers to break up the blocks and create mid-block walkways for pedestrians and bicyclists. And that's that's been having a really good effect here. In fact, a lot of times when I am walking around downtown, I will actually stay off the main streets and walk on the, the mid-block well, especially biking too, because we're still not quite as bike friendly as as we could be. So uh, I can often avoid a lot of potential conflicts with drivers if I stick to the mid block uh, walkways. But at the same time, yeah, we we have a lot of streets that still have basically seven lane wide streets that are only carrying, I don't know, in the ballpark of 10,000 cars a day. And if for anybody that is is familiar with, with traffic engineering, that's a whole lot more capacity than, than you actually need. So the wide streets present an enormous opportunity to be able to, in addition to regular car traffic lanes, to have really wide sidewalks with bike lanes, with transit only lanes and and have plenty of space to basically be able to do it all. It it's still a sticking point that there's still lots of people and lots of businesses that are still in the mindset that business will suffer if we don't prioritize car traffic and also parking. Parking's always the, the big thing. And we actually, uh, a couple of years ago, Salt Lake City, along with the Chamber of Commerce, commissioned a study with Nelson Nygaard, with Jeffrey Tumlin, who's now the, the director of of uh, the MTA in, in uh, San Francisco. He led the study and was basically a look at a, like a full inventory of all the parking in downtown Salt Lake City. It looked at all of the city-owned on-street parking, all of the private surface lots, all of the private parking garages. And when they tallied it all up, and looked at the typical flows, both just typical days and when there are events downtown. And it turned out that even when there's lots of events downtown, it's still not as big a parking demand as just a regular business day. And on a regular business day, only 75% of the parking spaces were taken up. So... While there is this huge perception that parking in downtown Salt Lake City is an issue, the research shows that it's not, that basically we could get rid of all of our surface parking lots and actually develop those lots into something useful and still have enough parking to uh, cover all of our needs. Unfortunately, the mayor that we had at at the time that wasn't really the answer that that mayor wanted. And so that study has kind of been shelved. 
And we now starting this year have a new mayor that we are hoping will dust off that study and actually make use of it. Yeah. What year was that uh, study done? Let's see, probably about 2017, I think. Okay. So it, that was a, f- a few years after CNU was was there in Salt right. Lake City. Because yes. CNU was CNU 21, and that was in 2013. Walk, walk us through some of the things that have happened in Salt Lake City since CNU 21. 2013, we were right in the midst of opening up new light rail lines. And we also, in April of 2013, we not only opened the rail line that goes through my neighborhood that connects downtown to the airport, but we also opened up our bike share system. There was lots of things going on at that time because the next month we have CNU and we have brand new things going on. The bike share is brand new. We have people flying into Salt Lake City to go to CNU and hopping on the light rail and being able to get right downtown to uh, where it was hosted at. And we, we were in the midst of also developing our streetcar line and the corridor that, that was also part of that. And since then, the pace of change has slowed a lot. The I believe it was the following year that we pretty much wrapped up all of our our rail expansion. And uh, we did add uh, protected bike lanes crisscrossing our downtown, which uh, has been wonderful. But uh, unfortunately, because of some political things, the, the mayor that had really focused on that was no longer the mayor. And the new mayor had actually campaigned on a platform of tearing out protected bike lanes, which fortunately never actually happened. (laughs) But there was a little bit of of bike lash by some people surrounding that. And unfortunately, we haven't made a whole lot of of progress towards expanding our, our bike infrastructure. Although we we have excellent staff in our transportation division, which has lots of of plans ready to go. And actually, pandemic-wise, we also, I forget what the mileage is, but we also have multiple shared streets that have been uh, put into motion during the pandemic. Are those mostly in residential areas on quieter streets? Yeah, it's mostly quiet streets and residential areas pretty much distributed uh, all throughout the city. It's had some mixed results. There are some some people that are that are not really understanding what the purpose of, of these streets are. But it, it was good that our new mayor was very happy to go ahead and institute that. And uh, that's a good sign for future for future changes. And, and just being able to get something out there to deal with the immediate need of being able to create space so that people can have proper physical distancing and dealing with the fact that there, there's just not enough space on the trails, there's not enough space on the sidewalks. And 
oh, by the way, the number of motor vehicles have completely dropped off the cliff in terms of, of number of motor vehicles traveling down the road. It's interesting because I've always felt that uh, Salt Lake City is in a rather unique situation of having those incredibly wide boulevards, those incredibly long blocks, and having relatively light motor vehicle numbers, as you mentioned. And so if you can get through those political hoops and be able to get down that that protected infrastructure, maybe even increase the size of the sidewalks, especially in the densest of, of commercial zones like you guys did on the one street to, that also has the, the, the streetcar uh, going through there, there's so much opportunity. And, and it doesn't have to all be super expensive stuff. Some of it can be lighter, quicker, cheaper, get it down and 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 let the dust settle and then get some feedback, see how it works, make some tweaks, that sort of iteration over and over and over again. The neat thing was, of course, that Salt Lake City was one of the first city, if not the first city in North America, or, or at least within the United States, to get in a true protected intersection. Let's shift gears a little bit. Why don't you bring us up to speed in terms of what you're up to. What are some of your passions and what are you working on now? As I did my program and part of it is is completing the professional project, uh, the, the capstone experience, I had in the back of my head basically looking at Utah and thinking, okay, we have light rail and commuter rail that's connecting our, our urban core but we aren't reaching out to more remote communities and we aren't connecting very well to neighboring states. And also realizing that we have lots of rail lines, uh, freight rail lines that are underutilized. And so I started looking at what we could do in Utah as far as connecting our outlying populations to our metropolitan region and saw a lot of promise in how the state of Utah could partner with Amtrak to use Union Pacific tracks to operate trains. And at the same time, I was also getting involved, not just in, in CNU and APA, but I got involved in a national nonprofit called the Rail Passengers Association which does a whole lot of ad advocacy, not just on, on behalf of Amtrak, but also just in general with commuter rail and light rail around the country and also transit in general. Well, I realized that I wanted to be the planner planning these rail systems, but I realized that I needed to advocate for it first uh, and get the ball rolling. And so as I finished up my master's degree, I decided to establish the nonprofit Utah Rail Passengers Association. So for the last two years or so, I have been trying to advocate and get the ball rolling on a passenger system that would connect populations across Utah and also to neighboring states. It's, it's been very interesting because I thought that, one, I would have an easier time getting funding 
And two, that there would be more criticism of what I was proposing. And it's been the opposite, where one, I've struggled to get funding. (laughs) And two, there's been very little pushback or criticism as, as I've gone out into communities around the state a resounding response has been, how soon can you get this running? We have struggles in Utah because we have become a victim of the success of our tourism marketing campaigns. So probably the best example is the town of Moab, which if, if you are a mountain biker, then you definitely have heard of Moab. It also is right close to Arches National Park and Canyonlands National Park. In the past, I don't know, well, basically since Salt Lake City had the Olympics in 2002, we have made a lot of effort into expanding tourism and really trying to take advantage of the five national parks that we have. It's been a huge success. It's been maybe even too successful. So now we have towns like Moab that basically get crushed by tourists during the summer. And the problem is that really the only way to, like if you wanted to go to Arches National Park, you would fly into Salt Lake City and then rent a car and drive out to Moab and stay in a hotel there and visit the park. The problem is that driving is really the only way to, well, there are some tours available, but there isn't public transit beyond our metropolitan region to be able to connect all of these these different uh, uses around the state. So I've, I've been working on trying to help these communities by proposing alternatives. And they've realized that they can handle more tourism. In fact, studies looking at the national parks realize that they can handle more people. They just can't handle more people arriving in cars. Yeah, that's kind of what the national park system has realized in many of their premier parks, whether it's uh, Yosemite, that's a huge problem, you know, just, you know, and depending on the nature of the park too, like Zion is a great example, just like Yosemite is, that's very damaging to the actual environment. If you're driving in on in that very, very narrow canyon and you've got all that pollution in there and then all the vehicles sitting in there idling. So you had mentioned that part of the dream is to activate and utilize some of the existing railway systems, Union Pacific is, is what I, I think you had said. So Moab is like 234 miles away. That's a pretty long haul, as you said. That's like a four-hour car drive there. Is there a pretty direct route from Moab to Salt Lake City? Well, to back up a little bit, Amtrak already crosses through the state once a day in each direction with the route of the California Zephyr. And it gets within about an hour's drive of Moab. So one option would be to tap into that and have buses that people could hop on that would take them into Moab. 
Uh, also, there is a rail spur that leaves the main Union Pacific line and goes uh, within three miles of Moab. The difficulty utilizing that is the point where it's closest to town where you'd ideally want to put the station is in the midst of a uranium tailings cleanup project where it was a uranium mine during the 50s and 60s and is now being cleaned up because it is immediately adjacent to the Colorado River and there's been concerns about tailings washing into the river and having radiation issues downstream. That ideal location for a station won't really be available for another 10 to 15 years or so, but there is very much the possibility of of having a train go down there in the near future. There's also a very strong possibility that you'd also want to connect from Salt Lake City to Grand Junction, which Grand Junction is the largest city in Colorado on the west side of the Rockies. And it's critical to be able to connect to Grand Junction too and have more, more train service there. Mike describes the commuter rail system in the Salt Lake City region, provides some additional details about the Utah Rail Passengers Association, and tells us about his decision to sell his car, choosing a car light lifestyle. But first, allow me this moment to pause and highlight just a few of the ways that you too can help support the Active Towns Initiative and this podcast. As a donor-backed 501c3 nonprofit, it's your generous contributions that offset the costs associated with creating this content. And we have several incredibly convenient ways for you to donate. For more information, click on the links provided in the show notes, or just head over to activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G, and click on the donate button. Okay, that's all for this break. Let's get back to our conversation with Mike. So on the commuter rail uh, that is currently in place, does it go all the way far, as far south as Provo? Yeah, it's, it runs, I think it's about 88 miles or so between Ogden and Provo with Salt Lake City in the middle. A lot of people have said, well, why, why can't we just extend that further south? The way the transit is done in Utah, as it is in a lot of states, where you have transit districts that have a very specific geographic extent and they, the, the way that, it's, that revenue is raised in Utah is that we've added a, an additional sales tax in those areas in order to fund our transit system. And to, to extend the, the commuter rail to Moab would require the transit district annexing all of that territory further south, which it's not really interested in doing. And plus there are some technical considerations where the running the commuter rail on Union Pacific tracks isn't really what they know how to do. It Ideally, you'd want Amtrak to do that because that's what Amtrak does throughout most of the country is operate passenger trains on tracks that are owned by freight railroads. So the, basically the model is that 
the state of Utah would hire Amtrak to operate on the freight rails. That's something that 17 states around the country are currently doing. feel like we have huge untapped potential around the country for better utilizing those, those freight tracks. And it's not going to get you speeds of like 200 miles an hour of high-speed rail, but it, it usually will get you at least to 80 miles an hour. And that at least gives you the ability to start to compete with, with highways. And I think that is something that's really been overlooked in the U.S. And I do think that high-speed rail is great. But unfortunately, to start a new high-speed rail proposal and get it implemented is kind of like a 30-year process, Fortunately, where usually it takes 10 years to get things organized and 10 years to plan and then 10 years to get it built. And that's what we're seeing in places like California. And also high-speed rail is enormously expensive. And in, in September, I was at a conference in Sacramento and uh, we got to take a day and do a tour and see some of the construction sites around Fresno and it, the, the infrastructure that is necessary to get a train to go 200 miles an hour is really massive. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it, it's, it's almost the, the opposite direction that we have the, the funds to, to, to go at this point. So, so when you're, when you're looking at this challenge, so you, you're in a rather interesting situation in the sense that you put the idea out there and folks are very positive about it, but it's incredibly difficult to raise money uh, for that. So what's next for you? What's what's your short-term goal for this initiative, this project? I, I'm in the position where I am trying to make this my full-time job because it really needs somebody to be a full-time advocate. And the thing that I'm really looking for is to find an individual or a company that is really interested in seeing this happen. And I've tried working with uh, charitable foundations, and they're looking more for different things to fund. They, they want to see something that's more direct assistance to people rather than uh, seeing basically an advocacy program go forward. So yeah, right now I'm, I'm really spending a lot of my time trying to find someone that would be interested in, in funding this. And that's been a bit of a struggle. So my, my advice to, to anyone wanting to start a nonprofit doing advocacy work is that it is going to be a big struggle. Uh, it's going to be a, a constant funding battle. The, the difficulty is that all of the time that I spend trying to do fundraising is time that I'm not doing advocacy work. And it's been, it's been chaotic with the pandemic going on. We're kind of moving into a new normal, and I have been switching my uh, initial idea of doing lots of in-person visits to doing lots of virtual visits. Yeah, the work keeps going forward <laughs> anyway. 
Yeah, yeah. So let's switch gears here a little bit. But before we do so, I'll make sure to include a, a, a link to your organization in the show notes so folks can head on over there. Why don't you go ahead and give us that, uh, that name of your organization and the URL? It's Utah Rail Passengers Association, and it's utahrpa.org. Wonderful. And I'll make sure that we have that uh, in there. To to wrap us up here and, and bring us to a close, Mike, uh, I wanted to end on a little bit more of an Active Towns uplifting note and talk about your day-to-day existence in Salt Lake City, because you are a car-free guy. Yeah. Well, I've realized that car-free is not entirely accurate. It's more like car light. When I decided to go back to grad school, I looked around at the transit landscape and the active transportation landscape around me, and I noticed a lot of mistakes being made because the people that were planning it were not basically daily users of the systems that they were planning. You know, basically you've got somebody that works for a transit agency that drives to the office, sits in the cubicle all day and then drives home at the end of the day. And I did not want to be that, that kind of planner. So I kind of already started doing this even before I went back to grad school, but I basically thought, okay, if I'm going to be, you know, planning in the in the realm of of active transportation and transit, uh, I want to be using it as much as I can. Well, one of the the really good things about the University of Utah is that all the students and faculty and employees, not just the main part of the university, but also the medical center and the research park. They all get a transit pass that uh, basically gives you free, unlimited use of all of the services of the Utah Transit Authority. And then on the on the other hand, they usually charge you pretty hefty prices to get a parking pass to park on campus. I decided to make full use of that transit pass and... I only ever, during during my time as a grad student, I only ever drove to campus once. And that was because uh, it was on a Saturday. We were finishing up a group project. I knew I was going to be there until the wee hours of the morning. So I actually did drive to campus. I felt really guilty about it. <laughs> but I made so much use of the transit pass and also my bike share pass and riding my own bike in my neighborhood that my car would sit parked for sometimes like six, eight weeks at a time. And I even noticed in the winter when it would get cold, which doesn't get that cold in Salt Lake City, but it's, cold enough that it starts to affect your battery in your car when it just sits. Well, my battery would discharge. And so then I'd go to use my car and turn the key and it'd just go click, click. And fortunately I had, I bought a power box so that I could jumpstart it myself. But then, you know, once you've jumpstarted a car, 
you're kind of like, well, I kind of have to drive it around for a while to charge up the battery. And, and, I, and I found if I just made a quick trip to the grocery store that I'd end up having to jump it again. So what you're telling me, Mike, is that it was more trouble than it was worth. Exactly. And <laughs> I realized that all of a sudden this, the argument that I was holding on to at that point of, well, the car's there for an emergency, and that was my justification. Well, that just didn't hold up, especially in the winter. And that, in fact, that my car was reaching about 17 years of age, and it had it was somewhere between 150 and 200,000 miles on it. And I'd only changed the oil like once a year at that point because I was driving so few miles. And so I'd, I'd go in for an oil change once a year when I had to do the emissions inspection and renew my, my registration. And of course, when I did that, the dealership would also give me a printout of, of recommended service on it. And the, the last time it was like $2,000 worth of, of recommendations. And, and I know that, of course, the mechanics are always trying to get business. But when I looked at the recommendations, I'm like, yeah, this is all stuff that needs to be done to keep the car in a state of good repair. And then, you know, I looked at what the blue book value on it and it was less than what the recommendations, you know, it was like $2,000 worth of recommendations and my blue book value was only seventeen fifty. So <laughs> all of a sudden it was like, well, I've got to do something about this aging car. And clearly the, the way forward is not to get a newer, a new car or a newer car. So I realized, yeah, it was costing me a whole lot more than I was actually getting use out of it. And at that point, when I made the decision, I was actually anxious to get it to the dealership and sold before it depreciated anymore. So I was able to get twelve fifty for it. That money has been sitting in a savings account ever since. <laughs> so... Yes, there are times when, yeah, it would be nice to have a car, but at the same time, got a great transit system. I've still got a mountain bike that I've had for 20 plus years. But really all I ever have to do is just pump up the tires. So <laughs> I've got other things to fall back on, like Uber or Lyft or taxis or whatever. So, and I'm, I'm really the, the emergency needs that... I thought that the car was there for just have never really happened. Well, one of the big things prior to that is I actually changed how I did my grocery shopping. About a year before getting rid of the car, I got tired of my neighborhood grocery store because they were really bad at keeping the shelves stocked. So I decided to switch from shopping there where I would basically drive once a week and, and get groceries for a week to shopping at a grocery store downtown because I was already passing through downtown, you know, at least once a day. I would basically just pretty much every day stop at the downtown grocery store, fill up my backpack and hop on the light rail and go home. So, yeah, once I made that switch, then the, the car became even less of a, of a thing that I needed. 
as part of the CNU fun run and bike, you sent in some photos from a, a morning jaunt that you did. Did you do that on your mountain bike or did you uh, jump on a, a bike share bike? Unfortunately, we don't have bike share yet in my neighborhood. That, that was on my own, my own bike, my mountain bike. I, I biked along one of, well, I actually live right at the end of one of the shared streets that have been established during the pandemic. So I biked the length of, of that shared street and then turned south along another quiet street, which eventually took me across the light rail line that goes between downtown and the airport, actually took me across the Union Pacific tracks that go through my neighborhood, which is also the route of Amtrak through uh, Utah. And then I connected up to the, uh, well, one of the big assets in my neighborhood is the Jordan River, which is the river that, that goes through the Salt Lake Valley and eventually flows into the Great Salt Lake. And we now have a continuous multi-use walking biking path that connects the length of that. And that actually goes within a half block of where I live. During normal circumstances, I always kick myself for not making more use of that. But during the pandemic, when I needed to just get out, I have ridden that path a lot and and I've seen lots of other people doing the same. The interesting thing, too, is that in recent years, there's been a push to get more people actually using the river itself for recreation. And uh, during the pandemic, I have seen more people in canoes and kayaks on the river than ever before. And uh, it is a little bit... Like you can just hop on a bike or just walk along the path and, you know, there's no learning curve. You do have to do some research if you're going to go out and boat on the river because there are some hazards that you have to avoid that unfortunately from, from time to time people actually drown because they go out on the river and aren't aware because the, the river, it's, it's a very docile river, very slow flowing river. But unfortunately, they have some weirs and some canal diversions that you can easily get caught up in and drown if you don't know how to avoid it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, what a what a wonderful activity asset to have uh, nearby in your uh, in your neighborhood. Uh, we're going to have to bring this to a close, Mike. But I wanted to just say a few things and give you a huge shout out. You you've always been such a wonderful supporter of the Active Towns Initiative of the podcast. You're very busy and very uh, engaged out in the Twitterverse. And, and your your handle is at uh, MRC underscore SLC. So for those folks that uh, are interested in and in following along with you, 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 you do a wonderful job of amplifying the message of so many great people out there doing work across the country, around the globe. So thank you very much for all your support and your engagement out there on Twitter. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I hope this conversation with Mike provides a bit of inspiration for y'all to try something new, like perhaps swapping out a few car trips with a bike or transit ride to test out the feasibility. 
And for more information about the Utah Rail Passengers Association, be sure to check out the links I provided in the show notes. Before we part ways, please don't hesitate to reach out. If you have any suggested topics or guests, it's always so wonderful to hear from y'all. My email address is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. And as always, if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please be sure to subscribe and rate on the listening platform of your choice and help us grow the audience by telling a friend or two. Okay, that's it. Episode 35 is done and dusted. Thanks once again for listening. Please take care of yourselves and one another. And until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.